There's nothing wrong with your worship aids. I cheated and read the long version. (laughs) But I think there's a reason why Mark left that in. This morning, by coincidence with today's readings, I was actually down in the city celebrating a wedding. It was at the Quigley Chapel right by the cathedral. And the father of the groom was Greek Orthodox. So it was a Roman Catholic ceremony, but they wanted to work in some customs. And if you're familiar with those ceremonies, really quite beautiful. Maybe you've seen my big fat Greek wedding. There's a good scene of that in there. But you might know the custom of the crowns, where a member of the family called a komparos, sort of best man, comes up and he places the crown on the bride and the groom. And then, and this is very significant, he switches them. He places the bride's crown on the groom's head and vice versa, and he does that three times. And that's meant to significate uh, a number of things. The crown itself signifies that the husband and wife will be the rulers of their household. They'll be the ones organizing it for their own family. And by swapping them back and forth, The idea is that that's something they definitely share in together and that there's no one primary crown, so to speak. But there's another significance to the crown that needs to be mentioned as well. And that's that the crown not only signifies governance, if you like, but it also signifies sacrifice. It's this idea of the king as the one, or the queen, as the one who gives their life in sacrifice for another. And I love the fact that those two go hand in hand. And this couple wrote out really very beautifully an explanation of that in the wedding program. It would be easy to kind of downplay that sacrifice piece and just play up the fact that they are queen and king of this day. But if you're familiar with the Greek Orthodox Catholic faith, it really pulls no punches. And their liturgies have a way of stubbornly insisting that we wade into the full depth of the Christian faith. And this is a good example of it. In the wedding ceremony itself, that idea of leadership and martyrdom. But there's nothing macabre or morose about it. I mean, there's nothing there that suggests that this is something to be sad over. When I was a newly ordained priest, weddings were often a course of high anxiety for me, maybe even more than the bride and groom, because there's all these little pieces that you have to remember, and it's easy to forget. And if you screw up, it's just one more wedding for you. For them, it's their lifetime, so pressure's on. But as the years went by and you get more familiar with the mechanics of it, I've been able more to just be present to everyone in the room. But if I'm gonna be brutally honest, It isn't so much the bride and groom at that moment, say, when they're exchanging vows. It's very powerful and beautiful to be with them. But I find myself increasingly looking out, looking out to the parents, the grandparents, all the family members and friends, because it's really in their eyes that I think you see a lot of reflective depth at a moment like that. If you've ever seen the old movie Fiddler on the Roof, If you haven't, go get it on Netflix. There's a powerful wedding scene in that film. And yes, beautiful bride and her new groom are there, but the filmmaker captures so powerfully the eyes and the facial expressions of the parents of the couple and the grandparents and all the people in this little village. And there's such poignant looks. You can see joy, you can see sadness, 
You see it all in there together. I'm mentioning all of this because we get a little hint in our reading today, that second reading from the great letter to the Hebrews, that taken out of context can sound barbaric almost. It's this idea that Jesus is perfected in his suffering. It doesn't mean that God the Father is sadistic. It doesn't mean that somehow we should seek out suffering for its own sake. And it doesn't mean that the perfection of Jesus means that somehow he's the best when he's suffering. That word we translate as perfect maybe think of as his life is completed or it comes to the fullest sense of its meaning. The fact of the matter is, if God is truly going to become human, there's no way he can avoid suffering. It's just a part of the human condition. And suffering in its root form doesn't mean physical pain or misery. It means to bear or to carry. We may feel pain by ourselves, but to suffer in the literal sense of the word is something that we enter into with another. We carry their pain. We carry their emotion. We carry the fullness of our love and relationship with them in our own heart and mind. And that, I think, is what's at the heart of that beautiful tradition in the Orthodox wedding. That sense that at this very moment, as I enter into an unbreakable bond with you, I not only share this wonderful ruling of our lives together, but I also share my suffering with you. And I invite you to share it with me. It's something to think about because we live in a culture that shuns suffering like the plague. Do everything you can to pretend it's not there. And again, I want to be very careful. I'm not saying we should be sadists. It's not about seeking suffering for its own sake or causing it for another. But it does come, and we all know that. And it can be a kind of sublime entryway into deeper love if we let it. And that, I think, as much as anything else, is what Jesus was trying to get across when he says again and again, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to lay down your life. And for most of us, praise God, that doesn't mean we'll physically die for our faith. But it does mean, are we willing to lay our hearts down for another? Are we willing to say that through our baptism, and remember, every one of us was baptized priest, prophet, and king. Are we willing to say that with the authority of grace that came through our baptism, we're also willing to take on the martyrdom that comes with it? Because it's so easy to walk away from those moments. Lots of marriages founder because that part of the crown of baptism is shunned and doesn't want to be embraced. I say to the seminarians down the road, and they do think this is strange until some of them have actually lived it out. I say to them as a priest, you can't simply tolerate suffering. And you can't simply work to create a world in which it isn't there. They'll do all of those things. That's incredibly important. But when you encounter suffering, not only in your own life, but particularly in the lives of the people who will be entrusted to your care, you need to approach that suffering with a kind of fascination. And again, it's not the fascination that we feel you know, in the presence of something happy or joyful. But it's a fascination that draws us in rather than closing us down. It's a fascination that says, here in this moment, if I enter into it with you, 
I have the possibility to offer and receive a love that's deeper sometimes than anything else or any other moment I experience. It. And the reason I stubbornly insisted that we force our way through those extra few lines of the gospel reading is that notice what Jesus does. As he's talking about marriage, he then brings the little child into their midst. And he basically forces them to realize that if you want to take on the care of another, the way a parent takes on care of a child, if you want to look at the world through a child's eyes, which are the eyes of total dependency, then you've got to be willing to take on the suffering, the bearing with that goes with it. You've got to be willing to look into another's helplessness and not simply say, well, I'll take care of that for you, because we all know we don't always have that power. But to enter into another's helplessness and say it makes a difference that I'm here with you. If I'm fascinated with the suffering that's here, that means I'm not turning away, even when I can't wave a magic wand and change reality. The love of Christ, even on the cross, is not a consolation prize. It's everything that he has to offer us at that moment. So just an opportunity maybe this week as a little spiritual exercise. Whether you're married or not, whether you are engaged or not, every one of us wears a crown by virtue of our baptism. Every one of us was baptized priest, prophet, king, or queen. We probably don't reflect enough on the significance of that crown. But I'm grateful today, and I'm grateful to be able to share it with you, that this morning at that most beautiful and joyful moment, two wonderful people being joined in the sacrament of marriage, nevertheless, stubbornly, and with a sublime beauty, the crowns were placed on their head. And they were reminded that with this wonderful leadership, of their family that was coming, so also was the crown of sacrifice.